Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, I have a great conversation in store for you today with my beloved wife, Denise George, and our dear friend, Hobart Grooms, Hobie Grooms. Uh, actually, I've interviewed these two people before because they have collaborated on other writing projects, and there's a brand new book that's just coming out this month from Penguin Random House called The Lost Eleven. It's a World War II story. You don't want to miss it. But before we get into the story in the book, I want to talk to Denise just a little bit. You know, when I first met Denise, I was a youth evangelist, and she was dating the pastor's son of another church, and she was the prettiest girl I'd ever seen. But you know, what else attracted me to her was that she was a writer. She just published a letter to the editor in our local press, and that really impressed me. Well, She's continued to be a writer, a major league writer, uh, written how many books, Denise? Too many. Too many, she says, but uh, 30 books. And uh, we're going to talk about the most recent book that uh, she's just published, The Lost Eleven. But to begin with, Denise, say a little bit about your own calling as a writer. That's something you've always felt very deeply since I've known you. I have just always felt called to write. I'm like Jeremiah when they told him he couldn't preach. He said, I cannot not preach. I never remember a time when I wasn't writing. A fire in his bones. That's what Jeremiah said. It is a fire in my bones. Uh, It is a passion. It's an itch that is very hard to scratch. Now, you studied writing uh, when we were uh, in in Boston at Harvard in one of their programs and began to publish books uh, and have continued to do so right until now. Now, the particular style of writing or method of writing that you use in this book, The Lost Eleven, uh, is called narrative nonfiction. What is that? It's a it's a special kind of writing because you take a true story and instead of just journalism, names, dates, what happened, you put it in the form of a story so that you have the suspense and the excitement, uh, the dialogue. It reads like a novel, an exciting, action-packed novel. You get to know the characters, and it's just the power of story. I I believe that if we taught our children history in the form of story, um, we wouldn't have a problem with children learning history. And this is a part of history that has been dormant for 70 years and it is the story is just now coming to light. Let's get into the Lost Eleven. And Hobie, I want to ask you to say a little bit about who are these Lost Eleven? Why were they forgotten for so long? And what were they involved in in World War II? The uh, Lost Eleven were 11 African-American artillerymen who were members of the 333rd Field Artillery Battalion. And uh, they were in support of uh, two uh, units, the 106th uh, Infantry Division and a cavalry uh, outfit on the border of Germany. Uh, At this time of the war, the uh, uh, casualties of the Americans had been very heavy and inexperienced units were replacing units that had been online and had been uh, uh, 
sustained uh, losses and, and had been in combat for months. And uh, they were members of the uh, of an artillery battalion in support of these two units. Uh, the 11 uh, were, uh, as I said, African-American artillerymen who uh, had been with this unit since it was created uh, in uh, the United States and had landed uh, on Utah Beach and had been engaged in uh, severe fights, at uh, sort of sieges at Brest and uh, Saint-Lô, and then had fought their way across France all the way to the German border. So they were part of the D-Day operation. Exactly. Uh, it was... Uh, Many would think that the uh, it was unusual to have uh, African Americans in an artillery unit because most of them were used in uh, long as longshoremen unloading and loading ships, uh, driving supply vehicles, the Red Ball Express, which had to take supplies from uh, Saint Lo to all the way to uh, the German border. But there were uh, several artillery units, all black with white officers that uh, were exemplary outfits, and these were two of them, the 333rd and the 969th. And what they were involved in, uh, we're going to talk about what happened to them, uh, the kind of tragic fate that met them there was was called the Battle of the Bulge. We all know that term probably from movies and maybe a little history. Tell us, Hobie, what is the Battle of the Bulge? Uh, In December of 1944, most Americans, uh, generals and, and unit commanders thought that the war was almost over. They had swept through France and captured Paris, gone to the German border, and uh, they thought that the Germans were, were uh, exhausted and couldn't put up any resistance. And therefore, that's why they placed more inexperienced units in the front lines. This, these outfits were thinly uh, spaced apart. And were inexper- a number of them were inexperienced. Hitler, however, had other ideas and had been uh, surreptitiously gathering units for some months uh, and massing them on the uh, border with uh, Belgium and uh, France. The, uh, they had done this without use of radio communications, which could be tapped in by the Allies. And... Uh, they gathered there in great numbers, and on the 16th of December, 1944, they had three different armies broke through on a 50-mile front and caught uh, the, the Allied forces, mostly American, asleep, essentially. And why is it called the Battle of the Bulge? Well, the, the offensive was so successful, it was uh, designed to go all the way through to the Belgian ports, but it did make deep incursions into the uh, Allied front. It was such an uh, so deep uh, that it was literally a bulge into the uh, American lines. Now, this is uh, February Black History Month, and so it's really great and appropriate we're having this conversation today about these African-American soldiers who were involved in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, Denise, say a little bit about the question of race relations at that time in the armed services. Okay. And uh, how that that's a theme in this book that you, you draw out, isn't it? There's a wonderful quote in the front of the book by Stephen Ambrose. He says, The world's greatest democracy fought the world's greatest racist with a segregated army. 
at that time in history, uh, the uh, United States Armed Forces were segregated, which meant uh, any African-American coming into uh, like the training camps or, or actually the battlefields would have separate barracks, separate tents. Um, the Jim Crow laws, most of these men were from the South, and they came from places with strict Jim Crow laws, uh, meaning that uh, they, it was an equal but separate. Everything was separate. They, they used the what they called the colored toilets, the colored water fountains. Uh, they could not go to the library, the public libraries, or, or swim in the public swimming pools. It was separate, completely separate, black, white. And when these men went into the Army, this was the same situation. It was segregated. And even though they were fighting for the same rights, the same freedoms, uh, they were fighting a double battle. They were fighting the German enemy overseas, and they were fighting uh, civil rights at home because they fought side by side, but they didn't have the rights, and they were treated very badly by the white other white GIs. That's a dimension of the story. It's very moving in a way to hear what the sacrifice they made uh, in this condition where their full civil rights were not in, in play. It wasn't until President Truman, I think, right, that the uh, armed forces were integrated. It was on July 26, 1948, that as president, Truman signed an executive order 9981, which abolished all racial discrimination in the United States uh, armed forces. But that was three years after the war ended. In a way, this story resonates with me in a little bit like the Tuskegee Airmen. Say what, a word about that. Is this a fair comparison? I, th I think it is. Um, this is a unit that uh, was considered one of the top artillery units in the uh, 8th Corps, Troy, General Troy Middleton's outfit. They had started off as a bunch of rough southern boys who had no experience. And they were, it, the book shows how they were uh, trained and how they developed into an organized unit that had a reputation for being able to put out more shells in a given length of time than just about any other. They were two of the uh, crack outfits in the war, and the 11 were members of that outfit from the start. Now, I want to talk a little bit about who they were and where they came from and, and get into their, their personal histories. But before we do that, I think it would be interesting to know how the two of you came across this story. Uh, how did this idea arise, and why are we just now, all these many years later, talking about the Lost Eleven? I've tried to reconstruct it. I read for the first time about this uh, incident in an article in the uh, Tuscaloosa News written by Paul Greenberg of the Arkansas Democrat Dispatch, I think it is, or Democrat Gazette. And it described in several paragraphs the uh, how this came to be and how these 11 Southern boys, for the most part, were uh, – captured and managed to escape after the your unit was captured and uh, walked through the snows to get to help and were eventually captured and butchered by the uh, 
members of the SS, the first SS recon company. Nothing was ever heard about it because it was two months before the bodies were found. They were buried in the snow, and uh, there was uh, no investigation until a couple of years later, and nothing ever came of it. Uh, And it was only years later that uh, it was discovered, the incident was discovered, and a a memorial was erected, and uh, from then on, People, bit by bit, people found out about it. But it was not mentioned in any history book on the Battle of the Bulge until 2016 wow. in a book called uh, Snow and Steel. Um, That's just last year. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, early and early uh, in the year, I got a copy, and I, there is a paragraph in there that that mentions it. And also references and footnotes the various newspapers and the film, a film that was made uh, by the co-author of this book. And uh, so it it really lay uh, dormant for 50 years. We should mention the co-author with Denise is Robert Child, who has done a documentary film, right, Denise, on the book? Yes. Or on, um, on the story. Yes, called the Wirth 11. The Wirth 11. And mm-hmm. Wirth was the town, I guess, where they actually ended up and were killed, right? It's more of a hamlet. Uh, it's too big, too small to be a town because <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, go find it on Google Earth and you can go through it in three or four houses, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, <laughs> it's right on the border of Belgium and Germany where this happened. Quite near that. It, yeah. It's in Belgium. Uh, but near the German order. Now, one of the fascinating things, uh, Denise, about this story is the family uh, that they ended up at the, I guess, the farmhouse or the house of this family, and the young son who took an interest in this and kind of helped bring the story to light these many years later. Tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about that. Uh, a plane came by and bombed the captured the Nazis, the captured, the SS, the German soldiers, and these 11 men were able to escape, and they ran straight northeast into Belgium, and they ran for a whole day without stopping, and they finally saw a little village, Wirth, and just a small little village, a few houses, and they saw this one house, the first house, and it belonged to the Langers. They had, uh, oh, bunch of children at that time, a dozen at least. And they stopped at the house, and they were afraid to go in, but they knocked at the door, and the Langers, uh, strict Catholic, devout Catholic family, uh, German family, or Belgium family, invited them in, sat them at the dinner table, fed them, uh, heated up the stove, wrapped blankets around them, were very kind to them. And they were there for about an hour, and the German soldiers captured them. They saw them. They, I think someone in the, a neighbor alerted them that they were there, and they were the enemy, and they captured them. And they took them out in the snow and made them sit in by the side of the house for uh, hours in the freezing snow, freezing temperatures. And I've recorded the conversation of the men, they knew they were going to die. Um, when they the the officers came back, they took them to a cow pasture, and they tortured them, and then killed all of them. How do we know they were tortured? Well, 
the examiner, their bodies were found two months later, and the examiner uh, examined their bodies, and their bones were broken. There were gunshots in areas of their bodies not meant to kill them, but to just wound them, torture. They ran over them with with a car. They um, and, and a lot of this, I th- they would not. I don't think they would torture white men, white GIs like this, because of course it was against the Geneva Convention. It was against everything. Um, and I also think that when the, their bodies were discovered, uh, the book tells what they had, the, the items they had in their pockets, and very, very fascinating. But and some were Bibles, government issued Bibles, and one had a little silver cross. But what was so interesting was there were um, several other massacres, civilian and military massacres, in that area uh, that took place around that time. And this one was completely left out of the final 1949 Congressional Report on War Crimes. And it was put into the National Archives. It was t- uh, classified secret, this report. And it was buried, and no one knew about it for the next 70 years. These men's parents and families had no idea what had happened to them. Uh, they just disappeared. They were just dead, and no mention was ever made. Um, and and here again, I believe it was because they were African Americans. Don't you, Hobie? At that I think time, really, uh, I, I'm convinced of that. The um, there have been numerous uh, accounts of, of of Allied soldiers uh, being killed by members of the SS after they've been captured. This is the only one <clears throat> that I've ever read about where captured uh, soldiers were not only shot but were butchered. Their fing- some of their fingers were cut off. Uh, they were they were shot while bandaging members of their uh, fellow members of the unit. Uh, it, it I think it had to be a racist thing, which uh, you have to remember the the. Uh, the anger that these people were SS troops were feeling as they were def- coming right out of their homeland, and this was the the final thrust what, uh, of the war, and this this was a, a unit, the um, First Panzer uh, Division, SS Panzer Division, <clears throat> had been referred to as the Blowtorch Division in, for their in their campaigns in Russia. Which says it all. They 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 went through, and nothing was left uh, alive or living when they when they passed. Uh, I, I think it was uh, a, a frustration, and it was anger. It was r- their racist philosophy, which were the SS were inculcated with. The other uh, more notable. Uh, Atrocity that happened the same day with members of this unit. This was a recon unit of the of the first SS, which uh, slaughtered a number of sixty something Americans at an, an intersection called Malmedy in um, uh, Belgium. It is highly publicized. It was the news of that went out over the whole Western Front as soon as it happened, and it made a complete. Uh, sea, sea change 
in the attitude of American soldiers toward the German prisoners. Because to to hear that their prisoners had been slaughtered and had the members, but that received a wide publicity around the world. The the 11 at Wehrwerth were left as secret. And so the name comes unknown because they were. The Lost 11. The Lost 11. And it wasn't until 2013 that the House of Representatives um, passed a resolution to correct the omission of the 1949 subcommittee report. Um, And the statement, the first part of the statement reads like this, Our country shall be forever grateful to every member of the greatest generation who contributed to the defeat of fascism in Europe and laid down their lives so that future generations could enjoy the freedom of of, uh, blessing of freedom. That's certainly the case with these 11 black soldiers who courageously fought on the front line in the Ardennes against a relentless enemy and eventually made the ultimate sacrifice for their fellow soldiers and our nation. And even though the book has an ending that they were massacred, and, and killed, this is the hope. The book ends with hope because they have been recognized. The resolution has been passed. And I really want students, high school students, to read this story, especially African-American students, because these men are heroes. You know, they were some of the best artillery uh, in, in in the whole war. In fact, Yank Magazine in 1944 wrote an article praising them. They could hit a church steeple directly, precisely at nine miles away with their with their howitzer, and they were they were really good at what they did, and they just also it's it's these individual men who are who are so wonderful. One was on a baseball team in in. Uh, Piedmont, Virginia, West Virginia. And uh, he taught the other men how to throw a grenade. He was 38 years old. He did not even have to enlist. He was too old, but he enlisted. And he taught the other younger guys, GIs, how to throw a grenade. And he said, you throw it just like a baseball. And he was he was the the advisor and the the father kind of of this whole group, the relationship between these men was just so special and they were so good at what they did. And I found myself getting to know these men. I'd never heard of them until Hobie shared the idea with me. I found myself coming to know these men, know their families and really loving what they did and what they did for each other. And then when they were massacred, tortured and massacred, I thought, how can I put this in? And and, and I cried when I wrote it. I cried when I proofread it, uh, edited it, because it is just so graphic. But it had to be included because this was their sacrifice. But um, they're just they're incredible men. And I, I know one of the men died with a picture of uh, Jesse Owens, who had just won uh, nine years before the uh, four gold medals in the Berlin Olympics. That was 1936. Right? 1936. And Hitler um, was was so upset that an African-American had shown up his Aryan athletes that he wouldn't shake the hands of any of the black African-Americans, and he would not shake Jesse Owens' 
Well, hand. Well, this was little Georgie Davis's hero, and he kept his picture up on his family wall of portraits, and he took that picture of Jesse Owens winning those gold medals with him, and it was in his pocket when he was when he was massacred. This story has a lot of heart. It's not it's not just um, dates and and facts. It has that, but it also has heart. You know, this story is uh, it's a very dark story. Its story has a lot of suffering, a lot of horror in a way. War is hell, somebody said that. And you can see that kind of played out in the lives of these 11 African-American soldiers. But it's also about patriotism. It's also about heroism. It's about sacrifice and courage in the face of great, great adversity. And uh, now we live in a time and in a country where racial tension is very high. Um, and I wonder if maybe each of you would comment as we close out the conversation about that dimension. Uh, what what do we all have to learn, not only African-Americans, but all Americans, from these 11 African-American soldiers and what they did and what that means for us today? They were certainly heroes, and they were fighting for freedom, yet they didn't have freedom here in this country until many years later. I like stories about heroes who sacrifice themselves for others. We don't hear many stories like that anymore, but there are great World War II stories that include these people, and some of them we we never learn their stories. I think that uh, when the term sacrifice comes out and what hits me through uh, from the very beginning of this is that once they were taken in by this Belgian family, they were fed and given warmth and, and uh, their clothes were dried. And uh, when it was this, when it was learned that a SS patrol was on the way, they voluntarily left the house rather than put this family in peril. They could have been executed by the approaching Germans for harboring American soldiers. But they voluntarily left and gave themselves up to the to the uh, approaching uh, Germans, and and to me that that says a lot that uh, these these men f- did not want to endanger their hosts. So there's an element of sacrifice there. But I'm also struck as to. The, the fact this unit went on to receive the presidential unit citation at the Battle of uh, Bastogne, along with the other uh, all-black artillery unit, and uh, this is the first unit, black unit, to receive that high honor in World War II. Uh, they are men that gave their best, that fought their best, they fought courageously. And uh, for freedoms that they really never got to enjoy. Uh, And that hits me as I reflect on this whole incident. Denise? One thing, too, I think is really interesting. We would not know about these men had it not been for a little 12-year-old Belgian boy who remembers the 11 men Langer come into the house, Herman Langer come into the house, and one of the soldiers gave him a handful full of chiclets chewing gum and it made an impression just all of the 11 made an impression on 12 year old 
Herman. And in the front of the book, we, we talk about, but for the compassion of a 12-year-old Belgium boy, the tragic fate of 11 black American soldiers might have been forever lost to history. Little Herman found the bodies two months after the massacre when he and his family were out for the first time to go to church. They had been uh, homebound because of the violence in Wirth. And he he found their bodies, and uh, he they called the, the authorities and examiners. Fifty years later, the men had made such an impression on him that he had moved away from he was in his 60s. He went back on the 50th anniversary of the massacre that no one really knew about anymore. And he placed uh, a, a memorial on that site. And that's where the memorial now is, honoring these men that he remembered. And out of that came a committee who um, who is, is now holding a yearly memorial service there and hundreds and hundreds of people from the United States and from all over Europe are coming to that little community to pay tribute to those 11 men and that was because of little 12 year old Herman Langer otherwise we would not know about the story today. We've been talking about a book called The Lost Eleven The Forgotten Story of Black American Soldiers Brutally Massacred in World War II is published by Penguin Random House, written by Denise George and Robert Child, and it can be ordered uh, on Amazon.com. Uh, it's available. It's launched this month, and I want to thank my two guests, Denise and Hobie, for your contribution to this um, podcast and to this story for your good labor and your good work. And I want to thank Colonel Grooms. He was in every part of this. I could not, this book would have never been written without Hobie Grooms, never. And I should say this is the second kind of collaboration because both of you were very deeply collaborating on another book called Behind Nazi Lines, which is the story of our great friend Jero Hodges, for whom our chapel is named here at Beeson. So we have all these connections, but thank you both for your commitment and for your involvement, and especially for this conversation today. Thank you, Timothy. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.